Well, hadn't the worship been powerful good this morning, amen? Show some love to our stage players and singers. What terrific leadership in the house of the Lord today. Who's ready for some gospel preaching? Would you say amen? Well, let's take our Bibles uh, and be finding the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, for a few minutes this morning. If you're new to Hillcrest, you're coming in on the very last message of a 12-part series that I've been doing here uh, to begin our year uh, on the questions that Jesus asked. We've called this series the Jesus Method because one of his methods in very effective, powerful teaching, and of course, we're all able to identify uh, that Jesus was a great teacher. That's typically how he's best known as being this incredible and gifted teacher. Well, that's how the crowds that were around him in the first century saw it. He taught compellingly in ways unlike any other rabbi that any Jew of that period had ever heard. And he used a lot of tools. He used stories uh, called parables. Uh, He used dramatic acts called miracles. And one of the effective methods of Jesus' teaching ministry was the strategic placement of questions. Our Lord was a master at asking pointed questions. And his purpose was to develop sharp disciples so that people wasn't just running along with the crowd. He wanted people who knew how to think for themselves, who could deal with complex spiritual issues in order to properly understand who he was, his identity, and what he had come to do his mission. And so today we have saved the most important question for last. And I've intentionally saved it for Easter Sunday because not only do I think the question that we're going to look at today is the most significant question that Jesus ever asked, brothers and sisters, I believe that the question that we're going to look at today is the most important question that you find anywhere in the Bible. We'll get to it here in just a minute in Matthew chapter 16, but keep that in mind. I'm going to read just a portion, and then we're going to take this passage in sections as we go along this morning. But to get us started, uh, let's take a look at Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Everybody ready to read? Say amen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I don't know about you, but when I was a student back in the dark ages, I was never really very good at math. Can I get a witness this morning? I mean, I'm a verbal guy. It's kind of part of the reason I do what I do because I'm much better with words and sentences and paragraphs than I am with numbers. Some people are better with numbers than they are with words, but God didn't bless me with that gift. Always 
did reasonably well in the classroom, but it didn't just come naturally. I really had to work. I had to memorize and I had to struggle with all of those formulas. And I tell you, even more than a lot of the formulas, one of the things that I struggled with were what was called word problems or story problems, uh, mathematical difficulties that came in the form of a narrative, right, that always involved numbers that needed a solution of some kind. If this happens and if this happens and if this happens, what's the area of this or what will be the outcome of that or what will be the force of that? And I just hated that stuff, man. And I remember when I was in the 10th grade, I had a geometry teacher, Mrs. Thompson, who said at one time, because more than half of the class was having trouble, she said, I know some of y'all are having trouble at this stage of the game, but I don't want you to worry about it and I don't want you to get freaked out about it and phase out about it because I promise you, there will come a time for most of you where all of this, to use her words, will click. I'll never forget, that's the word she says. There'll come a time when it just clicks. And when it finally clicks, I bet you won't have problems approaching these story word problems ever again. And there was a time, she was absolutely right for me, there was a time that came where finally I figured the system out. I knew how to read into it. I knew how to approach it. I knew how to analyze it. There was a time where the fog lifted and everything seemed to click, even though at the beginning, things were very confusing. Now, I say all that to say that's the way it was in the early days of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. People admired him. People were wowed by him. But there was a confusion about who he was and about what he came to do. There were certain dynamics about the teaching and about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that hadn't clicked for most people, including the most intimate friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 men that we call his disciples. They were about, when we get to this narrative in Matthew 16, about halfway through the three-year public ministry of Jesus. They're about 18 months into it. And here about the halfway point, uh, Jesus realizes that it's time to test his disciples, to determine whether they were kind of grasping who he was, what his identity was, and what his mission was supposed to be. And so, feeling that it was time for his identity and his mission to be clarified, he approaches the disciples there in Caesarea Philippi in the northernmost part of Israel, almost southern Lebanon today. So they're out in the remote part of Israel and Jesus begins to dialogue with those 12 disciples and true to his custom, in order to help them clear out the fog and for things to begin to click, Jesus does as he customarily did with the crowd. He begins to ask them some questions in order to help clarify their thinking. And actually there are two questions that he asks here. The first relates to the opinion of the masses. What's the word on the street? Jesus wants to know. Because Jesus knew, like this preacher knows today, that religious people tend to have an opinion about everything, right? People like to talk. People like to talk about church. People like to talk about their Christian neighbors. People like to talk about their preacher. And Jesus knew that people were probably talking about him. And so he asked the disciples about the word on the street. 
Who does the community in general say that I am? Who do people declare me to be? And the answers that the disciples give them, not insignificant. They knew, they had been listening. They'd been dialoguing with people. They don't have to say, well, let us pray about it and come back to us tomorrow. They immediately have answers for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're not significant. They all indicated that by and large, people considered Jesus to be knowledgeable, that he, they considered him to be believable, authoritative. People generally thought this guy's a rabbi, man, even though he's not been schooled like the rabbis we know, he's kind of a country preacher, but man, is he compelling. Man, is he fun to listen to. Man, does he back up what he says. They'd never heard anybody teach. He's some kind of a spokesman for God. Some were saying specifically, I'll tell you who he is. He's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Man, everybody loved John the Baptist, that firebrand preacher from the south, preached in the wilderness of Judea, wearing coarse, hairy camel hair in that southern Judean heat. I've been where John the Baptist preached. It is hot, and he wears a coarse coat of camel hair tied together with a belt of leather with sandals strapped to his feet and out there eating locust and wild honey. You talk about talking about a preacher. People talked about John the Baptist. And his message was crystal clear. Repent, turn from your sin, for the kingdom of heaven is drawing near. He had come to point people to the coming Messiah. And so repent. And then here comes Jesus, and guess what he starts preaching? Same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, and here it is. It's me. And so many people were saying, he's got to be John the Baptist come back from the dead. Others were saying, no, it's not John the Baptist, but he is another Old Testament prophet type. It's Elijah come back from the dead, the firebrand prophet of the Old Testament who worked great miracles. And with the miracles that Jesus was performing, no question as to why many would have confused him with the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Others were saying that he was another prophet, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet of Israel, who's got a book that's like 40 chapters long in the Old Testament. He preached for 40 years to a backslidden rebellion people of God called Israel, and he's called the weeping prophet Jeremiah is because there's not one recorded evidence of any human being ever turning back to God in 40 years of preaching. If that happened here at Hillcrest, I'd get fired, amen. But Jeremiah, man, he loved the Lord and he loved the kingdom and he loved the people of God and that was seen in Jesus. So they're saying he's Jeremiah, come back from the dead. So while everybody was respectful about trying to say this is who we believe he is, they were respectful, they were courteous, they believed they were in the presence of greatness. There was a variety of opinion and most people didn't completely agree. There was a general lack of agreement <clears throat> as to who he was and what he'd come to do. Now, let me ask y'all a question. Does that sound familiar today? Y'all ever get into dialogues with anybody about who the real Jesus is? Now, there are some people today that would deny Jesus of Nazareth was a real historical figure, but that's kind of an ignorant claim to make because even secular historians have written about Jesus. I mean, people that wrote back in the first century outside of the Bible 
have independently verified men like Josephus, who was not a born-again follower of Jesus. So there are many other writings that testify that this was a real guy. So you can't say Jesus never existed. That'd be like saying Julius Caesar never existed or Alexander the Great never existed. But then there are others that you know as, as well as I do that have a variety of opinions about Jesus. People say, well, he was a great teacher, and indeed he was that. And people say, well, he was a social reformer. And he did kind of come to shake up the apple cart among the social political establishment of the day. And people say that. He was a political reformer. He was a great moral ethicist. He was all of these things. People generally identify Jesus to be a kind man, a merciful man, a man who cared about those people that society tended to push to the sidelines, right? He cared about the poor and about women and about the disenfranchised. People generally say these kinds of things about Jesus, which are all true. The problem with them is they're just incomplete. Because most people would stop short of saying, but I do believe that Jesus is like God in a human body. Most people say, I don't believe that. No, I don't believe Jesus is the son of God. No, I don't believe there's anything divine about Jesus. He was just a man, a good man, even a great man, a moral man, a concerned man, but they would stop short of seeing anything supernatural about Jesus. Do you believe Jesus should be followed as Lord? Do you believe Jesus should be bowed before and worshiped? Most people on the street in Pensacola, Florida would say, no, I I, I don't believe that. And that brings us back to the discussion here at Caesarea Philippi because all of the opinions that were being expressed by the popular culture about Jesus, the majority of the crowds were interesting and they were well and good and respectful, complimentary even. But one of the things that Jesus wants to do with his inner circle, those 12 guys, is he wants to show them as he wants to show us here today that he is someone that cannot be defined by the majority view that he's someone whose identity and whose mission cannot be defined for us by popular opinion or by the majority of the popular culture. So what does he do? He takes the general question, who do people say that I am? And he redirects it back to these intimates that he's walking around Palestine with and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And there it is. Are y'all still with me? Say amen. That's the critical question of the Bible. That's the foundational question, the question upon which every other question of biblical history is built. This is the question that underlies all other questions. Believe it or not, what you have there is the most important question in all of life. Now, in our culture, we would not identify that as the most important question. In our Western culture, in our American culture, if I were to ask you quiz show like what's the most important question, it would have something to do probably with the question that most men ask to a woman who has become something of a significant other in their life and they want to spend the rest of their life with that good-looking woman. We call it popping the question. 
And that's become the most significant question concerning relationships in our American Western culture. And I'm telling you today, I mean, I'm a pastor, so I do a lot of weddings. I've done them by the score through the last 25 years. And I've never seen anything like the kinds of pre-wedding engagement ceremonies that go on today. People sometimes spend as much money on the engagement soiree so that the question can be popped with fanfare and with audiences. People spend money on dinners and on public venues and decorations. They hire photographers, they hire videographers to capture the instantaneous moment where it all would begin, right? Spend lots of money in the process. My, how times have changed. I'll be married 33 years in about three weeks. And when I asked my beloved sweet Judy to marry me, it didn't involve any of that stuff. It went something like this. Um, Jude, you wouldn't want to get married, would you? Something like that. (laughs) Kind of like that. Scared to death. Pulled the ring out of my pocket, opened the box. The stone was so small, I had her close her eyes. And when I said open, I had a magnifying glass stick in front of it. (laughs) She wouldn't take a million dollars for that ring. Can I have an amen from the ladies this morning? That's the truth. But as important as that question is, it's not the question, not the most important question in all of life. The reason that this is the most important question is because this is the question of the Bible where all of the rest of your forever eternity hangs in the balance. Life, death, heaven, hell, knowing your purpose in life and living with joy and abundance or wasting your life by making it all about you. This is where it all meets the road right here. It all hangs in the balance with how you answer this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, Jesus pops that question to the group of guys there, and after a few seconds, there's dead air time, I'm sure. Who do, who do you say that I am? Crickets. And they're all looking around wondering who's going first. And it shouldn't surprise us, it's Peter that goes first. Amen. Everybody loves Peter. Impetuous, stick your foot in your mouth, all of that stuff. He is fumbling, bubbling, keystone cop of a disciple all the way through the Gospels. But boy, he, he shines like a supernova right here. Because Peter steps up and his response is as critical as the question Jesus asked. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, say it together with me off the screen. Simon Peter replied together, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's say it together again, together. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And with that answer, you have the moment it clicked. Peter. Bang. That's when the fog lifted. Man, these guys had carefully watched and observed the Lord Jesus Christ for 18 months, teaching with authority, healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, restoring wounded limbs, giving sight to the blind. Even more significant than that, they watched as Jesus did all of that and then would look at people and say, go now, your sins have been forgiven you and they wanted to jump back because that was revolutionary because they knew that the Bible taught only God 
can forgive sin. And here you have this very human Jesus going around, not only performing great miracles, but pronouncing people to be clean on the inside. Go. Your sins are forgiven you. And that was Jesus' way of saying, when they said, wait a minute, only God can forgive sin. Right. What you think about that? Because Jesus, by doing that, was making an overt claim, and that's what got him put on the cross. That's what made the religious establishment so angry with him because they knew that by doing those kinds of things, he was publicly claiming not to be a great teacher. He was claiming to be God. And so, with all of that insight, leadership of the Holy Spirit, Peter answers, the most important question with the only acceptable answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now the word Christ is a Greek form of the Hebrew word translated Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the same word. One's in Greek, the other is in Hebrew, right? But it means the same thing, anointed one. So when Peter identified Jesus as the Christ, he's saying, you're the one that the Old Testament talks about. You're the one the Old Testament prophets pointed to. You're the deliverer. You're the savior. You're the one that God has set apart and chosen to come to be a sin-bearing sacrifice, to die for the sins of the world, to deliver God's people back to a position of greatness. You're the one to, uh, that was to come to usher in the kingdom of God on earth, to offer salvation to every man who turns from their sin and believes in him. That's what they were saying when they made the right answer to the most important question. And when it comes to the identity of Jesus, let me just say, that's still the right answer today. There is only one answer. Only one answer will do. The popular culture will give you a variety of answers, all of which are true, but only partially true. They are incomplete in and of themselves. The only right answer is this answer. And this is how you must respond. Not by slipping in, swimming along with the, all the self-concocted notions of our world today that they tag on to Jesus. They won't do, even though courteous and even though respectful. No less than the great C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford scholar, himself saved out of a life of atheism when he was introduced to Jesus. One of the smartest men of the 20th century who ever lived, spent the rest of his life after receiving Christ as his own Lord and Savior, writing about the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the, the great chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, all of these wonderful books that he wrote on uh, the problem of pain and a grief observed in mere Christianity, his wonderful book that's changed the life of more thinking people probably than any book outside of the Bible. Read with me what C.S. Lewis once said. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying, that the really, uh, saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, you gotta love that line. 
or else he would be the devil of hell, a misleader of people. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And that's exactly what you see here when Jesus is obviously very pleased with Peter's testimony about him. He realizes that Peter has finally separated himself from the larger crowd and is now ready to take his stand on what he believes to be absolute truth. And Jesus is so pleased with it that he actually pronounces a blessing on Peter down in verse 17. Let's pick up our reading. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's Jesus' way of saying, bang, you got it right, perfect. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm telling you, that's just one of the most important statements of the Bible. Man, you ought to circle that one in red ink. Now, scholars have debated what that rock is when Jesus said upon you are Peter's, which is a word that means rock. It's a name that Jesus gave him. His real name was Simon, but Jesus called him Peter, which means rock. And he didn't always live up to that, but it's interesting that Jesus says, you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church, my following, my people, my force in the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And people want to know what is that rock upon which the church is built? Was it Peter? It may have been. Peter certainly was a driving leadership force in the building of the early church in Jerusalem. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And he's the critical leader in the infancy days of the early church. And so in one sense, Christ did build his early church on the leadership and wisdom and preaching of this lead apostle whose name was Peter. Well, we don't believe in the same way our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters do, that this meant that Peter has become the first pope. Not so much, no. In fact, the reality is it could well be that Jesus is talking about a different rock on building his church, his church namely the rock-like confession that Peter just made about him. Upon this rock-like confession that I and I alone am the Christ, the son of the living God, on this confession made by you, which is the confession that must be made by anybody who would follow me in perpetuity and in my com until my coming again, this confession has to be made by anybody who would become one of my own children and follow me in discipleship. Upon this rock of a confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will never be able to overcome it. Amen. And all over the world today on this Easter Sunday in excess probably of one billion people on the planet have gathered together in homes and houses of worship to do the very thing that we're doing here today, celebrating a Savior who is no longer dead but very much alive. Christ continues to build his church. And he will until he comes again. Now, what happens next is kind of surprising. Look at verse 21. 
from that time on, Jesus began to show that his disciples, or show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Again, another important statement that you ought to mark in your Bible. We call this a summary statement of the mission of Christ. And there are about three of them in the gospels that are peppered beginning here at the midpoint of Jesus's ministry. I mean, up to this point for 18 months, there's not been a word from the lips of Jesus about suffering. Not a word about dying, not a word about the cross, not a word about resurrection. There's been nothing in the Bible, in the teaching ministry. Now, after a year and a half, he starts to get real with these guys and he just comes right out and tell them, no more mamby-pamby, no more messing around. Let me just shoot straight with you today because from this point forward to the cross is gonna be the critical time in my public ministry. And he comes right out and tells them, not only do you need to correctly identify me, you need to also correctly understand why I'm here. You need to know my identity I am the Christ, the son of the living God, but you also need to know what the Christ is supposed to do. Namely, suffer, die, and come back to life. And this is the first time Jesus actually comes right out and tells them that. It's not what the crowds were expecting. Here's the deal. It's not what the disciples were expecting. So much so. See, these disciples were like the rest of the Jewish establishment. They believed in a Messiah, but they believed in a battlefield Messiah. They believed in a General Patton Messiah. They believed in an Alexander the Great Messiah. Somebody was going to come riding in on a white stallion with a sword in his hand and overthrow the Roman establishment and elevate Israel back to a position of political prominence like they used to have under the reigns of David and Solomon, a battlefield Messiah. Now all of a sudden you got the guy that they just identified as the Christ, that one who was to come. And what is he saying? I am the Messiah, but I've come to suffer and to die. And they don't know what to do with that. So much so, that it becomes almost a comedy because Peter actually grabs Jesus by the arm and pulls him aside and watch what happens. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to what? Say it out loud. Can you imagine rebuking Christ? I don't know, my son used to do it to me so maybe a disciple could do it to Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Adversary is what the word Satan means. And Jesus is saying, now you're my adversary. You were my star pupil about a minute and a half ago. Just that quick. Now you're my adversary. Now you're trying to get between me and the whole reason that I'm here. You're trying to position yourself between me and the cross. Get behind me. Not out in front of me. Get behind me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God. But on the things of man. Man, this is just a, such an important statement. It becomes the turning point of the gospel. Matthew 16 is the point at which the whole gospel turns. 
And everything from this point forward, all the cheering is going to begin to die down. All of the crowds are going to begin to thin out for Jesus. As from this point forward, he works his way south to Jerusalem and an old rugged cross. The son must suffer and die and be rejected. And on the third day, be ready. Can I say this morning? You all know that's exactly what happened. Amen. I mean, Jesus was rejected by the establishment. Jesus did suffer. Jesus absolutely died in the worst kind of way. And if the story ended there, brothers and sisters, I'm just saying there would be no reason for us to gather together in this place at the corner of Nine Mile and Guidey on Easter Sunday because we'd have no reason to sing and we would have nothing really to celebrate. But thank God, though the story did involve suffering and it did involve death, the story did not end with a funeral but with a resurrection celebration. The Christ who suffered and died is the Christ who came back to life. And he's the Christ who one day is coming again. He was raised to life and he's still alive. And Jesus said, there's going to come a day. You don't know when it is and neither do I. When God will say, It's time, and the Son of God will rise off his throne, split the eastern sky, set his feet down on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, establish a throne on a recreated new heaven and a new earth, and he shall reign forevermore. And those of us who know him by faith, the Bible says, will reign forevermore together with him. We shall live forever in a perfected place because of the beauty and the power of the resurrection through which Christ has defeated forever the greatest enemy that we'll ever face, which is the enemy of death. And the most important thing that you can be is ready. Are you ready for the big day that is to come? The only way to be sure that you're ready is to properly respond to the most important question Jesus ever asked. Who do you say that I am? This is the eternal, infallible, and errant word of the living God, and let all who agree say amen.